You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Well, hey, we continue our series, Firm Foundations, and today we're thinking about the person of Jesus. And uh, it feels like, hey, every week we talk about Jesus, right? And uh, that's true, we do. And uh, But we're going to dig into the person of Jesus. And, and so like I did a few weeks ago, and I think Jonathan did as well, is that I'm going to give you some information to kind of start off with. It's gonna, I'm going to kind of rapid feed it to you. And um, if you don't get it today, then maybe this week, email me and I'll send you some notes for three easy payments of 1995. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll get some more notes to you. But anyway, I, I wanna, want you to think about... Who is Jesus? Like who he's been in history and who, what scripture tells us and then even what Jesus says about himself. And then I want us to ourselves get to this idea of who is Jesus to us and that we have to come to a, to a deciding point of who Jesus is and what we're going to do with him and then what he does for us and in us and through us because of that. But Jesus is a divisive person, isn't he? You just say the name and I think even more so we see it in our culture um, because of social media and because of all the different stuff. You just mention the name of Jesus and he's divisive um, in, in all kinds of different ways. I mean, he's so divisive, our calendar is split based on his birth, right? We have before Jesus and after Jesus. That's how divisive he is. Because there's this the birth of this guy who's radically changed the world and everything, even history hinges upon his, upon his birth and his death and his life and, um, before Christ and everything after that's the year of the Lord. And I know if you're in, in academia now, it's before common era and common era and all this different stuff. But, um, anyway, since his birth, there have been a myriad of thoughts about who Jesus is. And, and, um, so I'm going to just give you some quotes from, from same, from some, blah, 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 from some, from some famous people. And, uh, here's one, a man who was completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was the perfect act. Mahatma Gandhi. You know that Gandhi considered Christianity, but by the way that he was treated by Christians, decided to not become a Jesus follower. I believe in person to person, talking about ministry and doing life with people. I believe in doing life person to person, and every person is Christ for me. And since there is only one Jesus, that person is the person in the world in that moment. They're the only person in the world at that moment, and that's Mother Teresa. She's saying every time that she talks with someone, they're the only person in the world because she treats them as if they're Jesus, and she gives them their total focus, her total focus and care. Here's one that you might not agree with. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Mikhail Gorbachev. I hear this actually quite a bit. This is a very common thought, and I can actually argue for it, um, but I won't today. Christianity will go away. It will vanish and shrink I don't even need to argue that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now, and I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. That's the theologian John Lennon. If Christ were here now, there is one thing he would not be, 
a Christian. Mark Twain. So if it was bad during Mark Twain's day, surely, right? However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he, Jesus, was and is God. And that's by the theologian and author C.S. Lewis. Some of you have been in his Narnia world, right? He was a great thinker, and one of his compadres was J.R.R. Tolkien. And the two of them, for a while, discussed, I mean, not for a while, but for a while, J.R. Was, was evangelizing and just sharing who Christ was and over a beer. And they were talking about life and Jesus. And finally, Lewis came to the point that um, to understand who Jesus was and accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But so I want to ask you the first question is, who is Jesus? Jesus, there's a, there's a mystery about him. If you've been in church long enough, you kind of feel like you've got this decided, but I want to maybe shake that up for you a little bit. Jesus is a, a man who's fully God and fully human at the same time. I don't, I can't grasp my finite mind as much as I've even studied. I cannot wrap my head around that concept. I know that it's real. I know that it's true. I believe it, but there's just portions of it I cannot get. Why would God want to inhabit a body like mine and a body like yours? Why would he want to to place himself and succumb and, and literally limit himself and be in flesh like ours? I don't get it, but I understand and I appreciate why he did it. He was born of a virgin, which again is a mystery, that the Holy Spirit overwhelmed Mary and gave her a child, Jesus, that she bore is a mystery. Jesus is well known in history. Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, write about him. There's a Jewish author and historian about the time of Jesus named Josephus who wrote about Jesus and his followers. Jesus is well known in history. We know without a shadow of a doubt there was a man named Jesus who was born, lived, died, and was resurrected. There's multitudes of evidence, not just in Scripture, but from others outside of Scripture. Suetonius and Tacitus and and Josephus wrote about something happened after Jesus' death that radically changed the culture of the day, that there became this powerful movement of his disciples and others as they shared the good news that Jesus died and was resurrected. Something happened. Even with the New Testament writings, there's over 30,000 documents that we have now that are within 30 years of the original manuscripts. So these are like really close you know, copies of the original manuscripts. And so that's, that's a huge amount, really close. Other writings of antiquities that we accept, like Homer and Odysseus and all these different things, they're literally a thousand or more years away from the original documents. So here you have the New Testament original documents written between 30 and 100. And the first, we know copies of those manuscripts, there's about 120, 130 A.D., so pretty close. But other books that are taken as valid and true are over a thousand years. So if a book is written in a thousand um, BC, and we find copies at zero, they're saying that's valid information to accept those writings. So if those thousand years are valid for separation, surely 20 to 30 with over 10,000. Most of the books of antiquities, they have two to three to four copies. At most, there's 20 copies. Scripture, there's over 30,000 documents. 
So one of our documents that we know and learn about Jesus is true and very, very, very secure. So who is Jesus? Jesus is fully man. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we see that Jesus is born of Mary through the Holy Spirit. But he has an earthly mom, Mary. He has an earthly father that helps raise him and Joseph. He has brothers and sisters, James, who writes the book of James and is the, the chief bishop of the early church in, in Jerusalem, is, knows him and grows up with him and, and talks about his humanity. We have stories of him growing up. And so few people today even doubt the humanity of Jesus. Think about it. I mean, we, we again, if you're in church for a long time, we get so focused on the Godship of Jesus, which is important that sometimes we forget the humanness of Jesus. In John chapter 4, we see that Jesus was tired. Any of you ever get tired? Even today, you're thinking, yes, I'm tired right now, right? He had the humanness of being tired. He got, he worked hard. He did his stuff and he got tired at the end of the day or maybe even in the middle of the day and had to take a nap. Any of y'all know that? Today at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, you're going to be like, lunch set me free. I'm going to have to take a nap. Speaking of hungry, Jesus got hungry. Some of you, even now, you're thinking you're hungry. The donut that you just had is not sufficing. You're thinking about where you're going to go, and you're making your lunch plans right now. Jesus had emotions. There's times that he got angry. He got angry over the right things, but he got angry. Jesus had the emotion of love. That he had people in his life that he cared about enough that he said, I love them. That's an emotion, but also a choice. And so Jesus experienced that emotion. He also experienced the emotion of sadness. And probably he experienced sadness because of his love. If you think of the story of Lazarus, where Lazarus had died and he came back. And ultimately he resurrected him. Before he did that, though, he came back and he was with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And they were together talking. And Jesus began to do what? Weep. That's one scripture you can be, uh, you can memorize, right? Two words, Jesus wept. Um, that's the whole verse. Jesus wept. He was sad because he loved because his friend was not there. He's human. Even though he knew that he was going to be resurrecting Lazarus in just a few minutes, there was sadness. Over the loss of his friends and joining with the sisters and their grief in that moment. Jesus also had other human experiences. He was tempted that he had an opportunity to make a choice to disobey and he chose not to. That he saw something before him, it was presented to him, and he had a choice to pursue that and chose to not. He was tempted just like us. That's a fully human experience. He also, the scripture tells us in Luke, that he learned that he went to school and that his mind expanded. Again, this is what I don't understand. I mean, like, he's God. He doesn't need to learn anything. But in his humanity, Philippians chapter 2 tells us he emptied himself of his godness, the rights to godness, and he grew and experienced the fullness of humanity. So he went to school and he learned the Torah. He went to school with his dad and he learned how to be a stonemason. He learned the tricks and the trades of the day, and so he was fully human, and his mind was expanded through learning. He worked. Here's my favorite one. He obeyed his parents. When his parents said, do the dishes, he's like, no problem. 
His parents said, hey, it's your time to mow the grass. He's like, yes, I've been looking forward to this day. I mean, we laugh about it, but that's his experience, is that he had family, he had parents, he had people that were superior in authority to him. This is why I think when you think about Philippians 2, that he emptied himself of his rights of God and subjected himself to human authority. That's even his mom and his dad. Even though, can you imagine that he's God and he's sitting at the table and thinking to himself, I don't know if I would do it that way. No, this is just the way my mind works, maybe. He's fully human. Again, he had a family, Mary and Joseph and James and other brothers and sisters. He was just like us, except he didn't sin. But he had to be fully human. He had to be fully human so that he could serve as our perfectly obedient representative for salvation. For you see, our great, 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 great grandfather Adam saw the temptation and disobeyed. And because of that, you and I were cursed with sin and sin nature. And so now throughout history, all of humanity has struggled with temptation. And, 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 and now here's Jesus, the second Adam, who in the fullness of his humanity saw temptation and was tempted in all different types of ways, just like you and I. And he never crossed the line so that he could be our representative for salvation. He stood in your place. In the courtroom of God, he stood in your place and said, I am willing to be the sacrifice for you. I take on all of your sin and represent you on the cross. That's rightfully yours, but I choose to do it for you. That's why he needed to be fully human and experience all of humanity, but not cross the line. Jesus had to be human to live in our place, and he also had to be human to die in our place. Romans chapter 5, 19 says this, because one person, Adam, disobeyed God, many became sinners. Actually, all became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. You and I can be made right in the court of God through us saying yes to Jesus standing in our place. To substitute him for us on the cross. So who is Jesus? He's fully man, but he's also fully God. Again, if you look back to the mystery of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus was conceived in his mother's womb by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The human and the divine were united in a way that it's never been done in history, and I guess I'm assuming that will never happen again in history. I don't know. I don't have that kind of prophetic skill. Jesus' virgin birth is a supernatural work of God. And I don't get it, all of it, but I appreciate it. Even think about this. The angels were sent by God, the Father, and announced Jesus' birth by saying, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.19, For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Or Colossians 2.9, In Christ 
lives all the fullness of God in a human body. God in flesh walked amongst us. Also, as being fully God, he had the authority to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, he told a guy, hey, I forgive you of your sins. And people were like, whoa, only God can do that. And he's like, I am. And they're like, whoa, and they picked up stones, right? When he said, I am, he was drawing them back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses asked the question, who shall I tell the people who's sending me? And he said, tell them that I am. And so when Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive sins, and they say, what? And he says, I am. He was drawing them back. They, had, they knew in that audience they had a clear understanding of what he was saying. He's also the ultimate judge of mankind in Matthew chapter 25 and 31 and following. That he will sit at the right hand of the Father. And at the end of time, you and I will stand before him and he will pronounce judgment. And his judgment will be, I know him, I know her, or I do not know him, or I do not know her. It will be pretty simple. Have you confessed the name of Jesus? Judgment will be pronounced based upon that. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And there's so much in that. We, we don't have time today. He is God. He's the son of God in John chapter 10. Even Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 and following it says, God elevated, God the father elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under earth. So all of creation and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And even the very final book, one of the last words written in Revelation, it says, Jesus says, I am Jesus, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last beginning and the end, which is kind of cool because in Genesis one, it says in the beginning, God. And Jesus was there. So in the beginning, God, in the end, God, I am in the beginning. I am in the end. I am the first. I'm the last. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I am. I am is what Jesus proclaims. Jesus says, I am fully God and fully human. We need his humanity so that he can be our substitution. He's perfectly obedient to the father's will. He experienced all that you and I experienced. And he said no to the temptation so that he could be the sacrifice for us. But also, he's fully God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So who does Jesus say he is? I think probably the best, I'm going to look through some of the I am's of John. If you haven't done that in your life this week, maybe that's your homework, is to read through the Gospel of John and, and read through the I am's. Again, he's drawing people back to Exodus chapter 3. Who, who should I tell people that I'm associated with, the I am. Jesus tells us that he is in John chapter 6, that he is the bread of life. That we hunger and thirst for something more in life and that he is the bread that fulfills us and sustains us and gives us life day to day. That's why Jesus even prays. He says, give us today our daily bread. He sustains us every single day and every single moment. When we hunger and thirst and choose other things, it's nasty and we spit it out. But when we take from the food of God, it tastes good and sustains us. 
In John chapter 8, he tells us that he's the light of the world, that in a, in a world of darkness and sin and depravity, he is the light, the all-sustaining light. It's like the, the Olympic torch. His light never goes out. And that when you are seeking refuge, when you are seeking peace, when you are seeking security, when you are seeking clarity, you seek the light because light sheds the darkness. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you want clarity, if you want security, if you want all those things, come to me and you will have it because I am the light. There's security and refuge. If you have fear, run to the light. If you don't know what's going on in darkness, right, you choose to run to the light because you can see and you know what's before you. In John chapter 10, he tells us that he is the gatekeeper to the sheep pen. In other words, when the good shepherd calls out and calls out to the sheep and says, it's time to come home for the night. The shepherd is the gatekeeper. The good shepherd is the gatekeeper. And he doesn't just let any sheep in. One, he only lets his sheep in. But mostly he's looking for potential animals and pests and others that want to get into the sheep pen. And while they're resting to hurt them and to harm them. So he says, I am the gatekeeper. So as he calls out to you, and in our house, my wife calls us in by going, psst, and we know. So we have that little signal. I don't know what yours is, but God calls you by name, and you clearly understand that it's him calling you home. And whenever he calls you home to the sheep pen to rest for the night, he stands in the gate for several reasons. But one of the reasons is because he wants to make sure that you're one of his. And that as he does that, he uses his crooked staff. You know, the long stick that has a little crook, he uses it. He stops you with it. And what does he do? Like a good shepherd, he stops you before you enter in and he examines you. Because the days are rough and tumble. They're hard. You've gone to places and you've been to places and sometimes you've been scratched. Sometimes you've been hurt. Sometimes things have happened that maybe you don't even recognize. And so you just need the great healer and the good shepherd to examine you. So as you come into the shepherd, the sheep pen for the night to rest, you can only rest if you feel good. And so he stops you and he begins to pull back the wool. And he looks at you and examines you to see, is there any harm? Is there any hurt? Do you need the anointing oil that will provide healing? One, he's calling his children in, but he's also calling his children in so they can be cared for. So that in the night they can rest. He stands in the gate for us. He's also not only standing in the gate, but he's the good shepherd. He knows us. And so in those moments as the good shepherd, he uses the tools that he has to care for us. And so one is the, the crook so he can stop us and, and examine us and help us. And sometimes he has to use his rod. And his rod is a stick that is made, made by him, perfectly fits his hand, that he's practiced over and over and over again. He can throw it many yards and clip you in the hip or wherever he needs to clip you to distract you and to get your eyes back on the path. Because a sheep that is off the path is not only walking through the valley of shadow of death, but can quickly fall off the path and be harmed and hurt and die. So a good shepherd is constantly attentive to his sheep. And so if they don't respond to his voice, he will use the tools necessary to Discipline his children and his sheep so they will turn their eyes to the path of life. Because the good shepherd goes before us and walks the path, the valley, the shadow of death path. He takes us to places that may seem fearful for us, but he's already walked it and he knows that it's safe for us so that we can get to the great 
other side where the pasture is, where the great, the better feed is, the better pasture, and that there's streams of water that are slowly moving so that we can sit and rest and eat. And as the scripture tells us in Psalm 23, that we can lay down and just rest in his presence and his oversight and know because our bellies are full and we've drank from the living water of God. He's the gatekeeper and the good shepherd. He's also the resurrection and the life. And John chapter 11 is when he tells us this, reminds us of this. In John chapter 11, it's right before he calls out the name of Lazarus and raises him from the dead. And he's having this discussion with, with Mary and Martha, the sisters to Lazarus, about the time that he weeps. And he says, you know that I'm the resurrection and the life. And that because you're resurrected from here, you have new life. The old is gone. Now you have a new life in me. When I call you out by name, I call you from death to life. John fourteen six, Jesus tells us that he's exclusively the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He's the gatekeeper. No one comes to the Father to rest unless they come through me. Which means they have to know my voice. They have to have a relationship with me. And in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the farmer. He's the caretaker. He does the pruning. But I am the vine. Life comes from me. Life eternal comes from me. And so that the grapes that are going to be grown, they're going to be beautiful grapes. And they're going to provide bounty. And wine in the Jewish culture was joy. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you want abundant joy and abundant life, the only way for that to happen is for us to be grafted in to the vine of Jesus. And that the father does the discipline, the father does the pruning. Why? Sometimes it hurts. He throws the rod and throws the staff to the discipline to correct us. Why? Because we want to have the abundant life, the joyful life, and that comes through the pruning. And John, one of Jesus' closest friends, he wrote the Gospel of John, and he tells us he wrote it for this reason in John 20. He says, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miracles in addition to, to the ones recorded in the book of John. But these are written, the ones written in John are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Matter of fact, we're going to even sing that a little bit. There's power in his name. There's power in the name of Jesus. That author, C.S. Lewis, that we talked about a little bit earlier, the creator of the world of Narnia. Any of y'all seen or read any of that? Y'all know him. He said in his work, Mere Christianity, he's written over 200 books. He said in his work, Mere Christianity, that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That his discussions with his friend J.R. Tolkien and some others as they were sitting around together and just kind of talking life and faith and trying to figure some stuff out. These incredibly intelligent men came to the place of saying, listen, Jesus is either liar or a madman or who he says he is. And we've decided, I have decided, he is the Messiah. He is Lord. So who do you say he is? Another well-known contemporary author has shared his story of Jesus and says this, I came under conviction in the third grade and I talked to my mother. 
I told her, I don't understand all this stuff about Jesus, but I need to talk to you about it. So we talked and my mom led me to Jesus. The following Sunday, I made a public confirmation of my faith. In one sense, it was not terribly eventful for an eight-year-old, but it was the most important event in my life. John Grisham. So who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important decision you will ever make. What you decide about Jesus matters today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to dig in where Jesus tells us even more about who he is, but he kind of asks his disciples this question, who do you say I am? And Jesus is... Most of Jesus' ministry is around the Sea of Galilee. And so you can imagine with me, here's the Sea of Galilee, here's north, south, all that different stuff. And so most of his ministry is from here to here, from the north part to here. And so, but this time he's done some stuff across the Sea of Galilee over here. And he kind of goes back across. He goes over here to, to heal a guy and then he comes back over. And then he takes his disciples about 40, 50 miles north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is an old city, and it had several different names throughout history, but it was currently known as Caesarea Philippi because Herod the Great's son, Philip, had rebuilt it, and because he was the king and leader, he got to name it after himself. But he also paid homage to Caesar, who gave him the ability to be the leader. So he was subject to Caesar, but he was leader of that group. And so he named that city after Caesar and himself. And it was known as a pagan city. It had many gods, many, all types of worship. You can imagine all the types of worship we've talked about in the past. And um, it's crazy stuff. And there's specifically a place in Caesarea Philippi where there's a temple that was built and established for the worship of Pan, the god Pan. And the god Pan is that one that you know. He's half man, half goat. And so think about it. Here he is. He's half man, half goat. And here comes fully man, fully God, Jesus showing up. And so you can see the metaphors. You can see all the stuff that's happening. And so Jesus takes his disciples here for a reason. He wants to ask them a specific question. He wants to reveal something very specific about himself to his disciples. They've been together now for about three years. They've had opportunity after opportunity for God to reveal himself and for them to get to know Jesus intimately. And so now he kind of takes them away from their regular routine, their regular place, and puts them in a whole other context where all kinds of gods are worshipped. And now they're standing at the precipice of Caesarea Philippi and the, and the Temple of Pan. And one of the interesting things about the Temple of Pan is this also as a part of it, there was this little cave that was there that was known as the Gates of Hell or Hades because it was a part of their worship. So they had the classical type temple, but also to the side, there was a, another part of the temple and it had a cave. And one of the things that pagans of the day believed that wherever water sprang up out of the ground, that water came from the underworld, that was a gift from the gods. And so that that was a place of worship. So this cave in Jesus's day, water sprung up from it. And as a matter of fact, the water was so full of it that it would, they created the temple over it. And they would have human sacrifices and they would throw the 
sacrifices into the water, into the cave. And if the water changed colors and the stream changed, they knew that the gods had accepted their sacrifice and that God was pleased with them. So Jesus brings them to this place, the place of the half goat, half man and human sacrifice, the gates of hell. You got that in your mind? And Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? You can imagine three years now, Jesus does a miracle. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He's, uh, you know, heals a blind man, heals a woman who couldn't go to the temple because she was unclean for 18 years and all different things. And so all of the rumors that were going on. And he asked that question. Here's the, some pictures so you can kind of see where Jesus asked this question. You can see we're looking across. There's a 30,000 foot, 30,000 feet of buildings and that little stick thing sticking up in the middle. It's not a stick. You know what I mean? The column. It's a big stick. The column is a part of the middle temple. And then you look all right across and you can see the cave. And a church, a Byzantine Christian church, built upon this place in the 4th B.C. But that was the place. And so now, because of um, several years ago, there was a collapse because of an um, earthquake collapsed upon itself. So some of the things have changed. But the cave is there. The water comes out at a different place. There's still water there. There's still springs of water. And so that's the gate. Let's show the next picture. Next picture, maybe. There we go. So you can see in there, there's, all, there's that stone in there, right? You see that? So that was filled with water, and they were throwing their sacrifices, and it was coming out. So Jesus, in the midst of this place, Jesus asked that question, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And you can hear all the, the different things. In verse 14, it says this way, well, they replied. You can see all the disciples talking about it. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Which makes sense. John the Baptist is a prophet. He spoke of different things and baptisms were happening. And some thought that he was maybe the resurrection of John the Baptist. And then they said, some say that you're Elijah. That he did some similar things that what Elijah did. And then others say, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Let's look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, but who do you? Say that I am. Not just what are the other people saying, but who do you say that I am? You, you 12 guys that have been doing life with me for three years and you've seen everything about my life and ministry. You've seen me vulnerable and transparent like no one else has. Who do you say I am? And Peter, the leader of the group, he's the spokesman. There are times that we see in Scripture that everybody kind of talks for a moment, but, but they've kind of elected Peter to be the spokesman. And so here in this moment, he's the spokesman for this group. And look what he says. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In this place where all these other gods have been worshipped. 
In this place where there's a half God, half man, and, and there's springs pouring out and where people offer sacrifices hoping to please God and, and hoping that they will be able to entertain God, Peter proclaims, confesses from his mouth. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you, Jesus, are the long-awaited anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Not the gods like all these others that are dead, that are stone, and that they try to appease. You are the son of the living God. Again, taking them back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created. All that's living came from him. Peter's confession. Verse 17, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon Bar-Jonah, John the son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn from this, this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Petra, or Peter, with a capital P, which means rock. And upon this Petra, with a little P, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Upon his profession of faith, The gates of Hades are held back. Upon your profession of faith, the gates of Hades are held back. Upon this rock, upon this confession, the gates of Hades are held back. There's power in the name of Jesus. Who do you say I am? The Messiah. The son of the living God. There is no one else but you. Verse 20. This is an interesting, this is one of the things of scripture I don't get. Then he looked his disciples in the eyes, right? This is what I imagine. He's, it's quiet in that moment. And he looks them in the eyes and he says, Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Like, what? what, what? The most important confession that's ever been made that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, don't tell anybody. Because it's not his time. The time will come. But for us, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who is Jesus to you? A mere man, a prophet, a good teacher, a madman, or Messiah? What do you do with Jesus? Can I pull back the curtain on my pastor heart? It burdens me that every Sunday that we have empty seats. It burdens me every Sunday that our sister churches have empty seats. Because I believe that if we truly understand the confession that we've made that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, we can't hold back from telling others. 
that he's the Messiah. Because if you understand that Jesus is the bread of the life and that nothing sustains us more than Jesus, you've got to share that food. If you understand that Jesus is the light of the world and that there's safety and security and there's clarity of life and of purpose, then you want to draw people to the light. You're like calling out like a siren saying, come to the light. That burdens me as a pastor. As a follower of Jesus. That we would want to miss out on time together. And just share the stories of what God's doing in our life throughout the week. Because listen, we're human. We're fully human and not fully God. And so how can we encourage each other to say, listen, as confessors of the most important confession, the deciders of the most important decision that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, we've got to come together and to be encouraged in that moment. So this morning, it's my question for you, the same as Jesus is, who do you say he is? What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? The world offers us all kinds of other things. Literally springs forth from the underground for us. But none of us, none of it fulfills and sustains and brings clarity and security like the name and person of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you need Jesus, just say, Jesus, I need you. That's how simple it is. Jesus, I confess. I make the same profession of Peter. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I want you and need you and will follow you to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Jesus. He is everything and all things, and because of that, we don't understand all of it. But, Father, you have given us more than enough information that we can say without a shadow of a doubt, if we want to, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. May that be the confession of our lips. May that be the confession of our hearts. May that be the confession of our minds. overwhelm us that the gates of hell are held back by that confession that the things of our life that we struggle with that we allow hell in our life is because we've allowed it that we've forgotten the power of the name of Jesus. We've forgotten the power that comes with proclaiming that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, not the dead God, not the stone God that someone made with their hands, not the, the car, not the job, not you are the son of the living God who spoke the world into being. And with our very words of confession, you hold back the gates of hell. Father, may we believe and confess that God. I pray that our God is not too small. That we believe in the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who has stood in our place in the courtroom 
of eternity and said, yes, upon your confession, Chris, I stand in your place. I was on the cross for you. The fully man, fully God, God. And I proclaim it is finished. And the gates of hell will not win. It's in that son's name we pray this morning. In the name of Jesus, the most powerful name we pray. As we continue our time together, you have an opportunity to pray. Just seek your time. We remember we have candles back in here if you need to offer up some time with that. We have cross back here if you need to confess some things. We have communion over here if you're being reminded of the brokenness of what God has given for you. This is your time to respond as we continue to sing and worship this morning. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.